In the early um, 1990s, uh, writer John Hughes wrote a, a movie script uh, about a family who's heading overseas for a vacation during the Christmas holiday. In their hurry to make it to the airport, the parents accidentally leave one of their children at home. I'm sure by even just a slight giggle, I'm hearing a little bit in the room. You know, at the movie, I'm talking about the, the great cinematic classic, Home Alone. Uh, I'm sure many of us here are familiar with uh, the storyline to some degree. The family's heading out for a week in France over the Christmas holiday, and right before they leave, the night before, the, the power gets knocked out in their home, causes their alarms to, to not go off in the morning. Everybody oversleeps, and, and so they're in this crazy mad rush to get to the airport to, to make their flight. They're running through the terminal. They get there just in time as they're ducking through crowds and people, distracted by everything around them. They've got to get to their, their flight on time. The parents, for whatever reason in the movie, are sitting in first class. All the kids are in coach. Uh, and, and the mom, though, keeps having this nagging feeling that she's forgotten something, but she just can't think of what it is. Meanwhile, the their youngest son, Kevin, is seen walking through the empty hallways of their home, wondering where everybody is. Where is his family? At some point, as the plane's flying over the Atlantic, the mom realizes she's forgotten her son, who's now home alone. From that point forward, the, the rest of that, that movie is just a chaos that ensues. Uh, now, that movie is absolutely r- ridiculous, but what it does get right is that we're often distracted by, by the things that are most important in life. We're distracted from those things, and we forget what is most important in our life. And when we do that, when we're distracted, when we forget that which is most important in our life, uh, chaos is, is quick to follow. Um, I'll give you another example. Uh, this past week was my wife's, my wife's birthday. Uh, now, she's not somebody who wants to ever be the center of attention. She doesn't demand uh, large parties in her, in her honor. And, and she would say and does say, don't make a big deal about my birthday. And she's actually one who means that when she says that. Um, I don't have to decipher the code. Like, what are you really wanting? Uh, when she says it, that's what she means. Don't make a big deal about it. However, uh, if I were to let her birthday go by without acknowledging it, uh, without saying anything, without showing her that her family loves her, uh, that we uh, appreciate her, that we recognize and see her. Uh, Let's say I just completely forgot and just completely neglected it because for whatever reason, I was just absorbed in my own world. I was distracted by doing my own thing, what was important to me. Um, If we just let that day go by, there would be chaos in the home. And what I mean by that, don't, don't think like she's crazy. She's probably like, what are you talking about? Like, like what I mean by chaos is there'd be tension. There'd be a little bit of tension in the home because there would be some disorder. The relationship would have been affected by that. That's what I mean by that. There's, there's damage to some degree. Why is that? Well, because the very nature of forgetfulness breeds chaos. It breeds disorder. It breeds disruption in our lives and in the lives of others. Forgetfulness is, is mentioned and is thought of when we forget something that's important. That's why chaos ensues afterward. Distru- this, uh, disruption comes after that. And so if, if the forgetfulness of a, of a spouse's birthday or the, the spouse's anniversary or, or just the, uh, the forgetfulness of any key moment or event in your life by, by your loved ones affects us, affects you, if it affects those friendships and affects those those relationships, well, how much greater is the chaos or the damage that is done that comes when we forget our God? 
when we forget what he has done for us and we become distracted by our own self-centered lives. In the text before us this morning that Sue read for us, Israel has forgotten their God. And the results of their forgetfulness is chaos. It's enslavement, it's oppression, it's judgment, it's divine discipline. We may be thousands of years removed from this generation that was written about here in Judges 3, but the human heart is still the same. We're forgetful. And we're often easily distracted by the shiny, glittery things that the world has to offer us. And so how do we guard our hearts against a kind of spiritual forgetfulness, which inevitably results in chaos? And again, I want to be careful here with even just using the word chaos. I don't want to necessarily mean that just everything falls apart in an instant, that, that, that in that moment of forgetfulness, there's just complete anarchy. But But when I think of this, like we were created, you and I were created to live in relationship with our creator. And so when we seek to live outside of that design, which which is what takes place when we stray from him, when we forget him, that that results in a fracturing of, of our lives, of our relationship, fracturing everything. It creates instability because, like I said, we're operating, we're living outside of your intended design and purpose. And and so the trajectory then of a life that continually lives in that way of forgetfulness of who their God is and of the creator without repentance, without a turning back, without this change of of attitude, it inevitably does result in just the unraveling of, of, of your life. And so again, the question for us this morning is how do we guard then our hearts against spiritual forgetfulness? Praise God, the answer to that question isn't found in us. It's not found in you. It's not found in in me. It's found in a God who lovingly pursues his children and has delivered his children from the hand of the enemy. And so since our God has delivered us from the hand of the enemy, we must then discipline ourselves to remember and to serve him only. And so this morning from the text, I want to give us four reminders that help guard our hearts from spiritual forgetfulness. Four reminders. So reminder number one that we'll see in the text is that remember that you're prone to forget. So remember that you're prone to forget. If you're a note taker, write that down because you'll forget it. That's the, that's the kind of the, the craziness of that point. We are prone to forget. So remember that. Look at verse 7 of chapter 3. And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. They forgot the Lord their God and served the Baals and the Asheroth. Uh, This here in verse 7 is one of the the few spots throughout Judges where the author is highlighting Israel's forgetfulness. And and he's, he's tying their forgetfulness to their evil deeds. And so the author says here in verse 7 that, that Israel was doing, they did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. The question that comes from that as you read that line is, well, what was that evil? What did they do that was evil? And he says, they forgot the Lord. That's what was evil. They forgot their Lord, which then resulted in them serving false gods of the nations that were surrounding them. You see, uh, we, we see something about the state even of the human heart in this first verse, and that is that we're all worshipers. We're worshipers. Just because Israel forgot the Lord didn't mean that they were not worshiping something or someone else. See, though we're prone to forget the one true God who is deserving of worship, we never forget 
to worship or serve something. We are unbelievable worshipers. Our, our lives are bowing down to something or someone right now. Your life is serving something or someone right now. What we must wrestle through then is, is, is the object of which our worship is directed, is it worthy? Is it worthy of worship? Worthy of our life? Worthy of us serving and giving ourselves to whatever that may be? See, worship is a response. It's a response to what we value. What do you value? It's actually fairly easy to discover what we value in our lives. What, what, what do you spend your time thinking about? What do you spend your time talking about? What are you continually inviting others to, to experience as well? well? How does your bank account reflect what matters to you? What would your friends and loved ones say is the one thing that drives you? This is who he or she is about. See, this isn't about having hobbies and interests. There's nothing wrong with hobbies and interests, but we, we need to come to and understand. I think we would. We, we do know how often hobbies and interests turn into obsessions. And that's what we must guard against. Just as the Israelites had, had many gods what they, that they were serving, we too often have many gods that have become the focus of our lives. The, the Baals and the Asherahs, they were, they were the gods of, of provision. They were the gods of sex. Though we don't call our modern-day gods Baal or Asheroth, we certainly worship the god of career. We worship what they represented. We worship the god of, of money and power and control over others. Our culture certainly worships the idol of sex, the idol of self, the idol of celebrity culture. There's no shortage of, of gods and idols that we chase after in, in our day and age. And we as God's children are just as prone to forgetfulness of God and to the chasing of those things as well. And the thing about it is often what our eyes and our hearts are fixated on are sometimes they're, they're good things. They're not necessarily morally corrupt things. Our, our jobs are not evil, but they can become an idol. Our, our children, Scripture says, are gifts. They're gifts given to us from God himself. But how quickly, how quickly do parents turn their kids into idols? And how do we know that? Because your entire life as a family revolves around your children. They, be, they can become an idol to our heart. Good things can become ultimate things, which then become evil things. Relationships are a good thing, but we can turn them into ultimate things. And often this idolatry that we, that we drift into is a, is a slow drifting away from the heart of God. The slow drifting away when we take our eyes off of that which is most important, that which is most ultimate. This uh, past summer, Amy and I got away for a, a little vacation down to Florida, and just, just the two of us. And uh, my, my wife, um, she loves, uh, loves the ocean, loves the ocean. That's, that's her happy place, to go and just sit and watch the ocean, hear it uh, crash into the shore. Um, so we, we want to go do beach vacations, but she doesn't like to actually swim in the ocean. For her, it's like, if I can't see what's around me, I don't want to be in it. 
All right, and so that's kind of her, her, uh, her philosophy when it comes to that. But if you give her a floaty to sit on, she'll just lay in that all day long because she's like, I'm on top of the ocean just riding the wave. She'll do that all day long. One day uh, while we're on vacation together, she, we're doing just that. Now, I, I'm headfirst into the ocean, right? Several years ago, we uh, were swimming uh, in Pensacola area, and they're like little jellyfish all around. So she's getting out. I'm like, well, I'll just swim around them. Like, I didn't want to, and, and then I got stung, and then I learned very very quickly, um, don't swim around jellyfish. All right, so I'm in, I'm like swimming around, I'm having a great time. She's on her little donut floaty and just kind of riding the waves. And I look back uh, at her after a few minutes and notice she is drifting out into the ocean uh, because she's sitting and just staring out into the ocean and not at the shore. And, and so I shout to her, hey, do you realize how far out you are? Like, is this intentional? Is this purposeful? What, what is going on? And she looks back to realize how far away she is from the shore. So she does the little backwards paddle to where she's safe again. Now, what happened was she was, she was staring out into the ocean. She, she was enjoying the beauty of it, enjoying the beauty. It was a good thing. But her eyes in that moment were taken off the most important thing, which was the shoreline. Because of that, she began to drift away. That's, that's what idolatry will do. Even the, the idolization of good things. They take our eyes off of the most important thing, God himself. And before we know it, we're, we're drifting away from his presence and we've done what is evil in his sight. Remember, church, we are prone to forget. We can't trust ourselves. And so therefore, we need we need continual reminders which ground us, link us back to that which is most deserving of our worship, which means that we need, we need to build healthy rhythms within our lives, which, within our homes, that will continually keep and help keep our eyes and our hearts fixed on him. One such weekly rhythm is the gathering of the church, what we are doing today. The author of Hebrews says as much. Don't, don't, don't neglect this, right? Let us consider how to stir up one another to love and to good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Don't neglect the weekly gathering of God's redeemed people. We, we see in that text there that we... That we we need one another to keep us focused on the one who is deserving of our worship, to guard us from, from drifting away. So there's a weekly rhythm, but on top of that, I would add, we need to build into our daily rhythms ways that keep our hearts fixed on, on him. Uh, for me personally, one simple thing that, that I do and, and sought to do is to literally schedule out times and reminders throughout the day to pray. And I use technology for that. I have little reminders that, that chime first thing in the morning, right around lunchtime, and right toward the end of the day that just say pray. Because for me, so often I can get so fixed in the, the good things I'm supposed to be doing and working, and, and I can even in that, I can drift. I can, I can be so easily tempted that, that I've got to do this work, that I've got to accomplish this, and I need those gentle reminders just even throughout the day. Pray. Remember what you're to be grounded in. Remember where your hope comes from. Remember where power comes from. Remember where your strength comes from. Remember that, that your effort is nothing without Christ. Build those healthy rhythms. Build those healthy habits in your daily life which stir your affections for God because we are prone to forget. Reminder number two, remember that chaos 
follows forgetfulness. This ties into what we talked about here at the, at the beginning, but remember that chaos follows forgetfulness. So I'm not going to belabor this point too long, but in verse 8, we see the results that, that came from Israel's forgetfulness. And verse 8 says that the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he sold them into the hand of Cushan Rishathaim, king of Mesopotamia. And the people of Israel served Cushan Rishathaim eight years. Now, the English language doesn't quite capture the depth here of God's, of God's anger. The word here, uh, anger, in the, in the Hebrew, when you look at the, the sense of it, the, the, the definition of it, what it's trying to picture, the image of it, is it refers back to nostrils. And you're like, that's weird, but think about it. Have you ever been so angry with someone that your nostrils flare? Like, like you're just, you're breathing in and out deeply. And like, that's that picture here in Judges. That, that's God's anger, that he's, he's fuming over what they are doing and how they have forgotten him. They're evil of, of forsaking their covenant God. But at the same time, we see here, God is a good father. He's a good father to his children. So what, what's taking place in verse 8 is, is in his anger, God lovingly disciplines his children. He's lovingly disciplining his children. Throughout Judges, we're going to continually see God's people abandoning him. But what we will never see throughout Judges is God abandoning his people. This, this handing of them over to their enemies is, is yes, God's judgment of their sin. But, but it's, it's God's discipline. It's God's discipline to awaken them to the emptiness, to the chaos that's going to come to their lives apart from them, apart from him. He, God loved them far too much to allow them to wander and to stray. And so he hands them over to, in, a, in a shocking way to this enemy that they would see and be awakened to the, the, the brokenness and the grossness of their sin so that they would see that apart from him, they're helpless. This is what good parents do. It's what a good father does, a good mother will do. They don't allow their, their children to continue in behaviors that they know will ultimately destroy them. When, when I was in junior high, I know this may come as a shock, um, I was a bit mouthy, a bit mouthy, um, I was a bit sarcastic. Uh, I was very, very ungrateful. And I was incredibly self-absorbed. And, and most of us, and I'm still those things, but most of this in my junior high years were, were directed toward my parents. One day, uh, I don't know if my parents are even in here. My, my mom probably knows where this is going. This is so great. One day I woke up. I woke up with a note on my desk in my room. It was from my mom. And the note said she was going on strike. I wish I would have kept that note. I wish I would have kept that note. Here's the gist of it, though. She wrote this long note to me. says, listen, I love you. I love you. But the way you're treating me, the way you're talking to me, the, your, your attitude in general is unacceptable. And, and, and your ungratefulness for, for all that we're doing for you is done. And so she said, from this point forward, I'm on strike as mom. The only thing I will do for you is what you cannot do for yourself. I will take you to school, and I will pick you up. But from this point forward, I will not cook for you. I will not pack your lunch. I will not do your laundry. I will not clean up after you. I am on strike. And she did that, right? She would cook dinner for the rest of the family. I had to make my own. 
Um, I, I honestly really don't remember how long the strike lasted. I don't think it lasted long uh, because that moment, uh, it, it shocked me into realizing what a jerk I was. Now, it's not like all of a sudden everything shifted and changed, but man, it, it awakened me. It awakened me like I, I cannot continue down this path. My mom, my mom handed me over to the enemy, myself. And, and my own self-absorbed, ungrateful, lazy self. And I quickly realized in that moment, I'm a monster to deal with. And, and so from that point, forward, there, was, there was a turning back. See, this is what God, is, in this divine way, is doing for Israel. He loves them too much to let them continue in their self-destructive ways. And so he hands them over to the enemy to awaken them to his grace. Hebrews 12, verse 6 says, The Lord disciplines the ones he loves. He chastises every son whom he receives. One commentary says it this way, that God sends uh, the Israelites suffering not simply to pay them back, but to redeem them. He still does this for his people today. Now, this doesn't mean... This doesn't mean that all suffering that we embrace and that we encounter and experience in this life, all pain that we feel is because of sin. Sometimes it is. Sometimes we, you might be like, man, I feel like I've just been in a wilderness for a long time. And what's God trying to do? And it could be that you've led yourself out into the wilderness. Absolutely, that could be the case. But, but what we also see that it doesn't mean that all suffering, all pain is because of sin. But what we can see from scripture is that all suffering, all pain is purposeful. It's purposeful. Nothing is just random. It has purpose behind it. And remember this as well, that no suffering that, that God's children endure is punitive, meaning this, that it's not punishment. And we know this because Christ has taken upon himself the punishment and the condemnation that our sin brought about. And so Romans 8 is very, very clear. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So if you are in Christ, read that verse again. Write it down. Memorize that verse. If you are in Christ, meaning you are believing and trusting in his life, his death, his resurrection for your sins, that you have been saved, that you are justified, you have been declared right, and you are no longer under his wrath or under his condemnation. Suffering is not God's wrath. God's wrath has been satisfied through Christ on the cross. That's what we rest in as God's people. However, if you have not yet believed, if you have not yet trusted, turned from your sin and in faith to Christ for his, his death, his resurrection, you are still under the wrath of God. You still are under condemnation for your sins. And so the invitation to you this morning, if that describes you, is to repent. Repent of your sins. Turn in faith to Jesus who will set you free from God's judgment. Brothers and sisters, you are not under wrath, but we are under grace. But God, in his grace, will often use suffering and will use trials to shape us, to conform us into the image of his son. That's what we see James chapter 1 displaying and talking about. That's what I mean when I say that all suffering is purposeful. Through the trial, God is awakening you to behold him to see him as sufficient, to see him as enough, to trust him and to yearn for his eternal presence. God is faithful. He's faithful to his children. And that's really the third reminder this morning from our text. Remember this. Remember that God never forgets his promises. 
Remember that God never forgets his promises. In verses 9 through 10, we see Israel's response to to their suffering. And then, then we see God's response. We see Israel crying out to their God. We see, we see genuine repentance here. And, and then we see God's response to their repentance. It says he raised up a deliverer who would now save them. And so this is where we're introduced here to Othniel. He was raised up by God. The scripture says here that, that the spirit of God was, was upon him and he went out to battle against the enemy of Israel and he fought for Israel's freedom and the enemy which had enslaved them and, and that enemy was given into his hand. See, God did not and does not abandon his children. He does not forget his promises, his covenant promises to his people. Psalm 34, rest in this, this passage here, Psalm 34, 17 through 22. When the righteous cry for help, The Lord hears. The Lord hears and delivers them out of all their troubles. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted. He saves the crushed in spirit. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. He keeps all his bones. Not one of them is broken. Affliction will slay the wicked and those who hate the righteous will be condemned. The Lord redeems the life of his servants. None of those who take refuge in him will be condemned. This isn't a passage that says God's children will not face trials, will not face suffering, but a passage that promises that God will ultimately deliver us from them. And this passage even points us eternally to this day when we know because of what Christ has accomplished that there is coming a day when death will be put to death, when pain and and hurt will sting no longer. Though our journey toward that day is going to be met with trials and met with afflictions of various sizes, ultimately the passage of scripture that we just read means that we will ultimately be delivered from them and we will see them no more. Praise be to Christ because of that and for that. And this is because God has, for us, raised up a deliverer. Because God has kept his promise. From the very moment that sin fractured everything in God's good world, in Genesis chapter 3, a promise was made to send a savior, to send a deliverer who would restore all things back to how they were intended to be. Just as Othniel was raised up and empowered by the Spirit of God to deliver Israel from the hands of their enemy, God raised up Christ. God sent his son Jesus, empowered by the Holy Spirit, to deliver us and to save us from the hand of our great enemy. Jesus says in John 3, 16 and 17, For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Again, I'll ask, have you believed? Have you believed this gospel? God hears your cry for help. Brothers and sisters, now we need to hear this promise from scripture as well. God does not abandon his word. The last reminder, last reminders, remember though, that rest comes from self-forgetfulness. Remember that rest comes from self-forgetfulness. In verse 11, we see the result that came from God's deliverance through the hands of Othniel. It says in verse 11 that the, that the land had rest 40 years. What took place was, was now there was peace rather than conflict. There was freedom 
rather than slavery. There was now joy rather than distress. When Israel chased after false gods, they, when they forgot their God, and instead when they centered their lives around themselves, all that they ended up with, and we've seen this over the past few weeks, was distress. All we saw over the past few weeks as we've journeyed through Judges is they've, they encountered oppression. However, when they now, we see when they repent, when they, when they turn, when they cry out to God, when they are asking for help, when they forget themselves and instead turn in faith to their, their creator and their Lord, it says the result is that the land had rest. Joy came when they stopped serving Baal and instead served the one true God. Again, remember, we're all worshiping something or someone. Rest came, peace came, joy came when their, when their affections we're also now stirred for the Lord and not for the gods of the world that was around them. The season of rest and peace, though, that Israel experienced for just those four decades before, as we'll see next week, them continue down the cycle of sin as they will once again forget their God. But for four decades, it says that they experienced peace. That should make us yearn here today for a, for a rest, for a peace that's eternal, that has no end. We don't want an end to the rest that we find in Christ. We want an eternal peace that comes through him, and that's exactly what Jesus promises, this kind of rest. And here's where it's found in Matthew 11. Jesus says, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you, meaning his teaching, and learn from me, for I'm gentle and lowly in heart, and you will, here's a promise, you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, my burden is light. Do you want rest for your soul? A rest that's eternal, a rest that's never ending, a peace that cannot be broken. Where do we find it? Take your eyes off of yourself. Stop Search in the self-help aisle at every bookstore. You won't find the answer there. Stop running from one false savior to the next, thinking maybe this one will finally give me the rest my soul craves. Jesus says, come to me, and I'll give you that rest. A rest that lasts forever, a peace that triumphs over death. How do we guard our hearts against spiritual forgetfulness? By remembering God's divine deliverance in the person of Jesus Christ. By remembering God's faithfulness. By disciplining ourselves. Grace-driven effort. We talked about that a week or two ago. Through grace-driven effort. Through the power of God's spirit. We center our minds. Center my heart around him. Not ourselves. We guard our hearts by, by placing ourselves in the, the protection of others within the church community. As, as we join in with one another who we promise and covenant together to faithfully remind one another. Remind me of the hope of the gospel. Don't let me stray from this. Which means in church, brothers and sisters, our language with one another must be a, a gospel-driven language. A language which points one another to the hope of Jesus. Because our hearts desperately are yearning for more of him. And so do you yearn for him? Do you desire him? Are, are you nothing without him? Come to Jesus. The one who's delivered you from the hand of the enemy. The one who give your soul rest 
Remind yourself and one another of these truths. Let's pray. God, we come to you this morning. For many of us in this room, I, and myself included, I know these things. I, I don't think I've, I've shared anything today. If, if anyone here has grown up within the church, that was shocking. We, we know these things, but yet I think what so often happens, I, and I'm just going to speak from personal experiences, I'm so quick to forget them. I forget what I truly know. And I look for other gods. I look for other things to validate my life, to affirm who I am. I, I turn so quickly from you. I forget who you are. And so, Father, I, I know I need this. We, we all need this as brothers and sisters, as the church, to continually remind one another of the hope of the gospel, to remind one another of the faithfulness of our God, to love one another enough that when we see a brother or sister begin to drift away, to shout out to them with, with grace and with love and with mercy, but to pull them back so that they would see what is the most ultimate thing. God, may we be that type of community here. We are an imperfect people, absolutely, but, but we have been saved by grace, and so may we rest in that grace and may, may we proclaim that grace with great joy to one another and as we leave this place, as we're sent from this place to our community. Father, tonight we have an opportunity to invite our community onto our, our property. This is not just an event. We want to herald God's grace. We want to show them the, the hope that they can find in Jesus and Jesus alone. And so, God, may we live that way. May we model that. May we believe that. May that, may that affect how we do outreach here as a church. It's not just for another event. It doesn't matter how many people show up. We want to be intentional with, with the purpose of what we're doing, God. So would you bless, as I even think about this evening, would you bless this time where we get to engage with our community, to love them and to serve them, but to love them enough to build that relationship, those relationships with them, with the hope of pointing them to the hope that's found in Christ. God, may we be that kind of people. Help us. 